0: What up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball, uh, where, of course, you listen to stories about basketball present, basketball past. Sometimes we veer off of basketball altogether. And uh, Gary Pomerantz is my guest on this kind of shortened version of All Ball because this is the anniversary of Wilt Chamberlain's 100 point game. And so instead of getting into the back and forth about Uh, about Wilt's all-time greatness or maybe even talking about present-day selection spots for the upcoming NCAA tournament or the NBA and how we evaluate current teams. Of course, there's all these nonsensical historical arguments about who's a top-ten player and who's not. I just thought we should get some perspective on something which is really one of the – maybe the most remarkable record in all of sports. You know, so many of these records – are going to be or have been broken, right? From Babe Ruth and Roger Maris, obviously, to Henry Aaron's record, whether you think that Barry Bonds broke it on the up and up, I do not. I still consider Henry Aaron the all-time home run king. Um, and I think that Roger Maris is still the single-season home run king. That said, 100 points in a game is in the in an NBA is never going to be topped. It's just not. You know, if Jordan couldn't do it, if Kobe couldn't do it, um, it stands to reason that even Steph Curry couldn't do it, even though it feels easier in terms of three versus two and the volume of possessions and the pace of the game. That said, uh, it's a record that we don't know a ton about. I like if I was to ask you about the 100-point game, you might know it was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. You remember the Will Chamberlain holding up the 100 on a piece of paper. And outside of that, you really don't know anything, right? So let's dig in. Let's find out. The man who wrote the book on the 100-point game is Gary Pomerantz. He joins us now on All Ball. So Gary, this uh, this book is amazing because it talks about something It's probably, I don't know, top five most referenced sports moment, sports stat, sports accomplishment that there, I believe, isn't any taped footage of like what is there actually footage of the game?
1: No, uh, all that exists because there were no TV cameras. There is uh, the fourth quarter tape of the play by play call on WCAU radio. Bill Campbell made the call. And that's it. Other than that, I mean, this thing was like a sunken galleon just resting on the ocean floor. Everyone had heard of it, as you say, but nobody knew anything about it. So so why? What what led you to want to write, write this book? So when I was a, ki- uh, a kid, I was in L.A. And, um, you know, in the early 70s, I saw this old muscled up Will Chamberlain playing for the Lakers, wearing his yellow headband you know, um, a defensive player, primarily shot blocker, rebounder. And I'm thinking, how did that guy score 100 points? Of course, what I came to find out, it wasn't that guy who scored 100 points. It was an earlier version of that guy. Seven, one, 260 pounds, ran the floor like a train. Um, You know, I mean, I would go so far to say is that Chamberlain, um, a, a decathlete, a basketball sensation, if you judge athleticism purely on the criteria of size, speed, strength, and agility, then Chamberlain might've been the greatest pure athlete of the 20th century. And if not, he's at least in that conversation.
0: So, so you decide, okay, I want to, I want to write this book about this moment where there is very little historical record. It's not that everybody doesn't know it exists. It's that there's
1: just very little. What's the process like? How
0: do you, how do you even start such a project?
1: So the first thing you do is find the players who are in the game because they're the central figures in in the event, and then it was finding you know people like Harvey Pollack, the noted statistician, forever part of the NBA for sixty years. He was a statistician that night and PR guy and everything else for the threadbare operation of the Philadelphia Warriors in 1961. Um, And then I even put in a note in the uh, Harrisburg newspaper, Harrisburg being 13 miles away. It's where the Knicks stayed that night when they came to play in Hershey, um, asking anybody if they were at the game to reach out to you by email, phone, whatever. And they and I heard from maybe 10, 12 people, um, how many of them had actually been there. I couldn't tell, but there were a few that clearly were there because their stories were interlocking and overlapping or corroborating other stories I'd heard about the game. This is like like detective work. It is like detective work for an unsolved crime. (laughs) Well, I think uh, the Knicks did view it as a crime. They knew that if this guy scored 100 points, people would be talking about it 60 years later. Why did they play in Hershey, Pennsylvania? Well, the NBA was not the NBA of today today it's you know glamour glitz exploding lights back then it was a lounge act. It was a league in search of itself the old joke was that the PA announcer would introduce the starting lineups and then would introduce each fan. There's Doug from Hershey and Phil from Harrisburg. I mean, there weren't many people, Doug, in, the, in that crowd. They said 4,124. But even that is suspect, I think, because I know of a number of kids who snuck into the arena in the usual time tested ways. And I know that Eddie Gottlieb, the skin flint, flint owner of the Philadelphia Warriors, you know, famously inflated his crowds and Gotti, as he was called, he was round, but his crowd counts never were 4-1-2-4. four, one, two, four, 4,124. That's the official attendance in Hershey. Okay. So you're starting to kind of piece things
0: together. Uh, obviously will no longer was no longer with us. Um, who was, who is the best in terms of the players who had the best kind of clearest recollection with the most, I don't want to say integrity, maybe credibility.
1: Well, you know, I also wrote a book about the crash of a small commuter plane. And, you know, there were mostly survivors. There were some who perished in this crash. And I would go to one, then an interview, then the next. What what plane? what, What plane? Uh, It was a Delta commuter, an Embraer 120, uh, 29 people aboard going from Atlanta to the Mississippi coast, an obscure plane, no one famous on it, 29 aboard, a crew of three, 26 passengers, and it crashed. And the people um, had time to get out, but they had to run through fire. And ultimately, 10 died and 19 survived. And I spent time with 18 of the 19. There's always one that doesn't want to be interviewed and uh, piece together what they saw, what they experienced, what they knew. This was about three years post-crash. Well, here's a basketball game now that I'm trying to reconstruct 40 years uh, post-crash. One of the most interesting people for me to interview was Daryl Imhoff, the former center at Berkeley won a gold medal with the 1960 US Olympics team in Rome. And Daryl had the unenviable task of covering the Dipper that night. And he, used to, he told me that, you know, <laughs> every March 1st, in other words, the eve of the anniversary of the 100 point game, he would break out into hives and get rashes, knowing that people were going to call. Daryl only played 20 minutes of that game uh, and uh, and fouled out. He fouled out. And that meant the Knicks next tallest player was six foot eight rookie Cleveland Buckner, who was kind of built like a flagpole. You know, he was very thin and, and couldn't hardly muscle up to Will, but Imhoff, I met him in Eugene, Oregon at the U.S. Basketball Academy, where he worked at the time. Daryl has since sadly passed away, but there was an open court there as he was giving me a tour of the place. And I said, Daryl, come here for a second. And we went down into the key. I said, I want you to show me how you covered Wilt. What I really meant to say is tried to cover Wilt uh, that night. Now, Doug, I'm 5'11". I'm a poor stand in for Wilt, but um, Imhoff was first he played the will character and I was imhoff he said wilt would lean back and it was like a tree was about to fall on me with his upper body he'd lean back and um and he leaned back into me then we switched positions and he became imhoff and I became wilt he said wilt would be down low here now remember the 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 key was, was the, narrow the lane was only 12 feet wide then and in part because of wilt they widened it shortly after to 16 but when wilt's Got a 12 foot lane. He can be out of the lane, take, get the ball, take one step, a long lunging step and dunk it. He's right there. Well, him off showed me how he took his left foot and sort of tried to wedge in Wilts left foot to keep him from turning in. Then he took his knee and sort of put it in and buckled my left thigh. And then he took the point of his elbow and put it between my shoulder blades. I'm going to tell you, 40 years later, he could inflict pain still with that. I mean, it hurt. This is what he tried to do to Wilt, do anything he could to push him away from the basket. Of course, when Amhoff fouls out, the Knicks had another six foot, 10 inch center named Phil Jordan. Pretty good player. You know, not very big either. I mean, he's 6'10", but about 210 pounds. Um, the problem was he'd gone on a, out on a late night bender the night before, and he was <laughs> vomiting at the Hotel Ben Harris. So he wasn't going to do much good playing against Wilt in Hershey. So as Wilt's point point total is climbing, climbing, um, the Knicks just surround him. And Paul Arizon, the great Hall of Famer who played for Wilt's team, the Philadelphia Warriors, told me, he said, "If, if somebody had walked into the arena, they would have thought the Knicks were way ahead because they were stalling. They're running a weave. They're doing anything to keep the ball from Wilt. And they would have thought the Warriors were losing because as soon as the Knicks got the ball, the Warriors would quickly foul them. So it became a more of a chess match. And, and, you know, as I say, the Knicks, their, their intensity, their sense of dread intensified as this game went on. Was, was it, was there a point where the Warriors decided to go for the hundred?
0: Like, was it before the game? Hey, we want Will to try and see how many he could score or was it just a process of the game play and Holy crap, Wilt can get a hundred. Let's keep feeding him the basketball.
1: Well, it was the latter. Um, You know, the Knicks were not a very good team. Earlier that year, they'd given up 63 points to the Lakers. Jerry West, the year before, they'd given up 71 points to Elgin Baylor, of the Lakers. Jack Kaiser, a a writer in Philadelphia, wrote, you can find better benches in Central Park. Um, You know, so the Knicks, you begin, weren't very good. They were missing their center, Phil Jordan. That's a problem. But what 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 people little consider about Will's hundred point game is that the teammates need to go along with it. They need, they need to subvert their ego. Right. They need to give up the ball. And with seven and a half minutes to go, Harvey Pollock, the statistician, slides a sheet of paper over to Dave Zinkoff, the zinc, the great PA announcer. And Dave Zinkoff says. Ladies and gentlemen, Wilt Chamberlain has just broken his own scoring record. He now has 79 points. Now everyone has context because this is not a time where you look up at the big board above the court and you see number 13 as, you know, 79. Is,
0: is there any possibility that they inflated, as you said, they inflated the attendance, that they inflated Wilt's points?
1: no. No, they didn't. And, and you know, it's it's kind of fun. This game has been launched into sports mythology. People don't believe it happened. People t- told, Wilt I was there the night you scored 100 in Madison Square Garden. That kind of stuff. You know, um, people want to be close to great moments such as that. So, no, it it did happen. It was not 50 dunks. Wilt was running the floor. Wilt was scoring on putbacks. Wilt was scoring on so-called dipper dunks. And with 46 seconds to go, um, he scores. And you can hear Bill Campbell on the tape rebound. You know, Luck and Bill out to Rucklick into Chamberlain. He made it. He made it. A dipper dunk. You know, the fans are over the all over the floor. And that was the sons of the chocolate factory workers sweeping onto the court to, to celebrate with Wilt. Um, he also made his free throws that night
0: though, too. That was, that was really the kind of the big difference was he was a poor free throw shooter. And
1: didn't that night he made a much higher percentage of his free throws. Well, yeah, 20, 28 of 32 and he was shooting them underhanded. He was yeah. shooting them underhanded. He looked ridiculous. I mean, he bent down low, his knees flared out. He looked like a, an adult trying to sit in a kindergartner's chair. Um, but he made 28 of 32. Um, by the way, Guy Rogers and Paul Arizon also shot them underhanded at that time. Uh, so if there's any real miracle in Hershey, it's not that Wilt scored 100. It said he made 28 to 32 free throws. He'd scored 78 in a three overtime game earlier that season. And, you know, you think about 78 points, a few of those shots that rolled out, if they go in, he makes a few more free throws, you know, in that game, he's up to 90 and then all bets are off. So it had been prophesied that the young Chamberlain would score uh, 100 points in a game. And, and the thing is, is Wilt, was a luminous figure at that time. You know, he lived uh, off Central Park in New York and drove down to Philadelphia for games. Really? Yeah. You can imagine how popular that made him with teammates. And he had... So he lived in, it's an hour and a half, right? Even I mean, and then probably even longer. But he, the thing is, is Will had a fancy sport car, sports car that he drove at high speeds. So whatever it would take you and me, I don't know how fast you drive, but it would... I drive faster. Yeah, well, it would take Will longer or less time to get there than it would me. Um, he owned a racehorse. He owned um, a custom made Bentley. He, he co-owned a Harlem nightclub called Big Wilt's Smalls Paradise. And, you know, it featured the likes of uh, Red Fox and Etta James and Cannonball Adderley and Wilt's there in his fine suit as the greeter. And he's moving through that club like he owns all of New York. And and so so he was an outsized figure at 25. This is you know you think of of sports stars as celebrities today. He was already a celebrity in 1962. And and to date it, I mean, John Glenn orbited Earth ten days earlier. This is the middle of the Kennedy in the abbreviated Kennedy administration. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.
0: So how how was the accomplishment received?
1: Well, it was like the mighty oak fell in the forest in the middle of the night and no one heard. You know, I mean, Harvey Pollack was was there writing for the Associated Press, the United Press and the Philadelphia Inquirer. There were only two writers there, neither from New York, no TV, um, and it, it took a little while for word to get out. You know, it was it was like they were waiting for the wagon train or the Pony Express to show up with the news. Um, but, you know, Bill Russell's reaction was, well, the big fellow finally did it. And uh, for the longest time, Wilt did not embrace this performance. Um, he thought it fed the notion that he was an individualist, only interested in padding his own stats. In fact, in the locker room after the game, Al Adles, his teammate, then told me that he remembers Wilt just staring at the stat book and thinking, and just shaking his head. And Al said, what's the matter, big fella? And Wilt said, I took 63 shots. <laughs> and Adels said, yeah, but you made 36 of them. And and uh, it was only decades later when Wilt began to understand what he'd done. I mean, as the baseball star of the Red Sox, Ted Williams, used to say, he wanted to walk down the street and have people point at him and say, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. Wilt came to realize that as he walked down the street, people would point at him and say, there goes the guy who scored 100 points.
0: Who uh, who who's whose cursive or whose writing is on the famous piece of paper that says 100 points?
1: Well, that, so that's Harvey Pollock. So Harvey was in the locker room and there was one photographer there. Actually, there were two, one from the Harrisburg paper, but had other assignments. So he left after the first quarter. Well, <laughs> so that left one off-duty Associated Press photographer named Paul Vathis. He wasn't just any photographer. He had won a Pulitzer Prize the year before for a photo he had taken of the young President John Kennedy walking on a path was with the former President Dwight Eisenhower at Camp David. And... Uh, So he's there with his 10 year old son taking him there for as a gift for his 10th birthday. And at the end of the third quarter, Bathurst told me he said to his son, you stay here. I'm going out in the car to get my camera. So he opens the trunk of his car, grabs his camera and comes in. He's got 20 shots and he's only got one roll left. He wasn't planning to work that night. So he plants himself under the basket and he gets a a few game photos. And then he goes in the locker room afterwards and says to Harvey Pollack, "Harvey, you think we can get Wilt to pose?" And Harvey, thinking fast, said, "Hey, Heff," to Jim Heffernan, one of the one of the two Philadelphia sports writers there that night. "You got a sheet of paper I can borrow?" And Heffernan gives him an eight and a half by eleven sheet. And Harvey, in a brainstorm, writes one zero zero, gives it to Wilt, and Wilt holds it up. Now, that's become maybe the most iconic basketball photo ever. Um, and it, it's really though staged, completely staged, it's it's a great photo because if you look on the wall behind Wilt, you can see his trousers and a jacket just hanging from hooks. He's on a solitary bench. He's sitting there. His knees are up in his chest. He's His face is covered with sweat. He's sort of smiling sheepishly. You can see one of the good luck rubber bands he always wore at his wrist. It's it's that great moment. It's the Dipper's moment. It's the night Will scored 100 points. And that's why that photo, I think, will live forever. He wore rubber bands on his wrists? Well, he wore rubber bands too on his uh, socks to keep them from falling down during games. He, it's something that dated back to high school. And he kept two spares, one on each wrist.
0: So you had quitters. That's not a quitter when you pull up
1: a sock and it won't stay up. It quitters back in the day.
0: <laughs> they wouldn't stay up so he needed that's that's amazing that's that's really remarkable so um so yeah it's it's the tree that fell in the forest um uh how, so that how did that year end up because again it's it's just such a weird moment that everybody remembers willed average 50 okay and i think 25 rebounds and he had a hundred but it's like the the complete opposite of now where the only thing anybody remembers is who actually won the title. How were the Warriors that year?
1: Well, they were good. They were, you know, they won 49 games. They were uh, 49 and 31. They finished 11 games behind the Celtics. They went into the postseason and lost again to Bill Russell. Um, uh, And, you know, by the way, there is one statistic from that season, Doug, that people don't know and they should know because it may last longer than the 100-point game, and uh, and that is that he averaged that season 48-and-a-half minutes played per game. Now, the game, as you know, is 48 minutes. 48 minutes. There were overtime games. There was a triple overtime game and another overtime game. He only missed eight minutes and 33 seconds of the entire season. That's How is that possible? Well, it's possible because the the referee, Norm Drucker, threw him out of a game with eight minutes and 33 seconds left. and So he never came out of games? He Before the season, he told the new coach, the college legend, Frank McGuire, a dandy from Greenwich Village, said, Coach, you know, you want me to play. Um, I can't help this team sitting on the bench. And besides, if you put me on the bench and then bring me into the game back in, it's going to take me three minutes to get this body warmed up. So he was like, OK, Wilty, you'll play every <laughs> every game. And so he did. You know, you think of time management of players. You know, keeping their minutes down, sometimes not playing them at all, just didn't happen then.
0: So he played all but eight minutes in change of
1: the entire season? Never came out in 80 games other than that one time <laughs> when he was thrown. Out. That's
0: more mind blowing
1: than anything yeah. I've ever heard. Yep.
0: Ever, I've ever heard. That's, that's incredible. That's incredible. If um, you do that to an NBA player today, you'd probably get a lawsuit. The player, <laughs> I'm not playing Tuesday. Uh, that's a, that's my, that was my that's my dream to never come out. Um, yes. uh, so he couldn't beat the Celtics. And my late father was a basketball coach. He had the opinion of Wilt that he wasn't a winner, that he wasn't a big game player, and that Russell was. When, when you're researching Russell, what was the general opinion of him other than his incredible physical dominance?
1: Well, the thing about Russell was his shot blocking and defensive skills. Wilt was an offensive player; he had his defensive moments too. Um, but um, you know, Russell was surrounded by a constellation of stars. Wilt had good players around him at different times during his career. At the end, with the Lakers, when he won his second and final title, Jerry West and and Elgin Baylor, an old Elgin Baylor, but yes, yeah. and he was old too. Yeah, right. And and um, you know, one year Wilt. Uh, playing for the Philadelphia 76ers, led the league in assists and won a title. And he crowed leading the league and assists me. He said that'd be like Babe Ruth leading the league and sacrifice bunts. Um, But but um, the thing about Russell is Ross Russell traumatized shooters. I remember I interviewed Pete Newell for this book and he had um, coached Cal back in the day Russell was he's playing at USF. And he said, Russell would come like almost out of the shadows and block shots of his best shooters. And and it so traumatized Cal's best shooters that they weren't the same for another three or four games. It's like they still feared Russell, who's not even in the game, is going to somehow appear and block their shot. Um, Will traumatized people with his offense. And this year, 1961, 62, the big scoring sensation was the rookie, uh, Walt Bellamy. Yeah. He was one of five guys to average 30 points a game that year. And when, you know, will will ramps up his intensity when he plays against somebody who's getting a lot of attention. So here comes Bellamy to center court, shakes Wilt's hand and said, hello, Mr. Chamberlain, I'm Walter Bellamy. And Wilt shakes his hand and says, hello, Walter, you won't get a shot off in the first half. And will blocks his first nine shots inside the free throw line. Now they come back out for the second half tip, which they did then. And, uh, they, and Wilt looks at Bellamy and says, OK, Walter, now you can play. And Wilt outscores him 51 to 14 and wins the game. You know, this, that was a, a quintessential Wilt moment. The Goliath syndrome, you know, seven foot one, but he needs to be bigger. And he pump, pumps up himself and there he is. Hmm. Um, all these years,
0: all these years moved. Uh, what what is the most fascinating takeaway that people will read this book and go i mean the stat obviously blows my mind the idea that there's no live video of it only the fourth quarter recording like all these other things but for you with all the time and research you spent what's the what's the nugget that somebody's going to walk away going that that one i i had no idea i didn't see coming and i can't believe
1: well it's not so much a nugget as it is context The symbolism of the game, people view it as a carnival act. It was not a carnival act. What people little remember um, today, particularly young fans, is that in those early years, the NBA had a racial quota that limited the number of black players to just a few per team. And uh, the Philadelphia Warriors had three black players in that game. Will Chamberlain, Al Adles, and the guard Guy Rogers, who had 20 assists that night, almost all of them to Wilt. And what Wilt did that night in Hershey and by averaging 50 points a game that season was to symbolically blow apart the quota. This league was not going to be a white man's enclave anymore. Hmm. I didn't know I
0: didn't know about the quota. I mean, it's, it's all these all these incredible things you didn't know uh,
1: um, uh, about it. Um, there were there were quite a few players, black players playing in the Eastern League, getting 50, 75 bucks a game on the weekends who were far superior players to um, you know, the NBA players on the bench, the white guys, and some of them in the starting lineups as well. And there was a lot of pain in that for them. These interviews I had with some of the early black pioneers in the NBA, um, it's important for us to remember this. It's it Really, at, with Chamberlain
0: himself is such a mythical figure, right? You have the 100-point game, you have the, the bragging about the 10,000 women. Now I'm learning about the 48 and a half minutes um, I didn't know. Like he lived in New York and played in Philadelphia. Those things um, are amazing. You mentioned that it took him years to really embrace the hundred points. Did, did anybody tell you why? Why? Why he eventually? What was the moment? Or what was the reasoning behind him finally embracing it?
1: I think it was a gradual process. It was almost like when he came to embrace it. It was like a, a, a father embracing his long estranged son, you know, that um, it had meaning. And and it was a profound experience for a lot of people. For Wilt, it was just one more mega scoring night. You know, the numbers were astronomical that season. He averaged more. He scored more than 50 points 43 times that year. So when he goes into the fourth quarter with 69 points, as hard as it is to for us to in, just put our wrap our arms around that, you know, it wasn't that uncommon. You know, you think today with the change in technology, what would happen if an NBA player goes into the fourth quarter with 69 points? I mean, fans would be tweeting it all over the place. ESPN sound trucks would be circling Hershey Arena, if it happened there, although it wouldn't happen in Hershey now, um, technology would lift it um, in a way that Wilt's 100 was not lifted. Look, when Kobe scored 81 points in a game in 2006, that two against the last place team, the Toronto Raptors, 15 minutes after he he scored his 81, you could buy a DVD of it online. Right. And, and I wish we could have had a DVD of Wilt's 100 point game on the one hand. On the other hand, it's it's it lives in the imagination. It's launched into mythology. You know, it's it's a part of Americana now. It's a piece of Americana like Andy Warhol's soup cans. You know, Wilt Chamberlain's hundred point game. It's uh, it's a moment that I think the Golden State Warriors, the lineal descendants of, of Wilt's Philadelphia Warriors should embrace more. They should they should um, you know, promote the fact that it, it's their guy. Will Chamberlain, who later, by the way, moved out. And after he scored 100 points, that season ended, the team was sold to San Francisco and they became the San Francisco Warriors. And the next year, Wilt for that team in San Francisco, averaged 44.8 points a game, and then 37. And then, you know, another season, half season, he averaged about 36 points a game. Just still astronomical numbers, not 50, but still statistical outliers in the, you know, in the history of the NBA. Numbers that only Will Chamberlain could have produced.
0: Amazing. Like I, I was thinking Rushmore of great individual single game accomplishments. It's on any, it's, it is. I, I cannot, I'm trying to think, like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's, if there's who the, what the other three would be in, yeah. in American sports.
1: Yeah. I mean, Gail Sayers had a game, the running back of the show. Chicago Bears, and I think it was 1963, playing on a muddy, rainy day in Wrigley Field, scored six touchdowns, you know, um, produced 336 all-purpose yards, returned upon 80, 85 yards for a touchdown, caught a pass. And, I mean, just had one of those one of those games. But basketball allows numbers to be built to the stratosphere in ways that other sports don't. And And, you know, baseball, a guy's not going to hit 12 home runs in a game.
0: No, Reggie's Reggie's three home runs in the world series is, is probably baseball's moment that that compares and, and
1: maybe, but three versus a hundred. I mean, 100.
0: no, I, I, I understand. I'm, I'm just like on the fly thinking what possibly could match up. What like that's, that's how powerful this moment is. There really isn't anything. And it's not like, well, there's a couple of guys that had 90, like nobody had 90.
1: Nobody at 85, nobody at 82. I mean, you know, Kobe's 82 is like the new base camp from which to climb up Everest to get to, you know, this. Right,
0: but you have to have three-point shots even to make that happen, right? So,
1: And which Wilt didn't have, but Wilt did have a 12-foot lane, right? Fair enough. enough. And Phil Jordan. The the sheer volume of,
0: of shots is remarkable. The volume of free throws, you know, so he shot, was it 63 shots and 32 free throws? Correct. The whole
1: thing is nuts. The it whole is, thing it is. It's nuts. And, and some of it's just the magic of 100, you know. Um, yeah. In our culture, it suggests a perfect score on a test, a century. Yeah. You know, there's something uh, golden about it. Yeah,
0: no, 97 doesn't do it. 102,
1: it. His teammates would would point out that he, he got called for defensive goaltending three times in that game. So really he scored 106. 106.
0: Yeah. That's yeah. yeah, amazing. Um, Gary, thank you so much for joining me. This is fascinating to anybody who loves the game and maybe even history. Like it's, it's more of a historical piece than just about sports, right? Because you're painting the picture of a completely different era and a moment in time, which everybody knows but doesn't actually know is that is that a fair
1: fair to say yes fair to say and that's why i went after it in this book wilt 1962 because um it matters that's a moment that needs to be uh understood not just known but understood i mean the idea that wilt chamberlain goes out to you know uh, the the land of the amish um to this utopian chocolate town a company town in hershey and and does you know, commits really a revolutionary act that makes a a statement about race um, is amazing.
0: It is amazing. Gary, thank you so much for your time. And I really, really
1: appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.
0: What an interesting look, right? At a historical moment that you know of, but until this pod, you didn't know about. I hope you appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, My thanks to Gary for sharing that time with us. A reminder, you can pick up his book on Amazon or go to Barnes & Noble, or of course, there's the Audible book as uh, as well. A reminder, the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily, 3 to 6 Eastern time, 12 to 3 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio, the iHeartRadio app, wherever you downloaded this podcast, you can download that as a podcast as well. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball.